You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the Bible together. We turn for our Old Testament reading to Isaiah chapter 22, the verses 15 to 25. In our text this morning from Revelation 3, it mentions the key of David, Christ having the key of David, and that's based on this Old Testament passage that you find here in Isaiah chapter 22. We begin our reading at verse 15 and end it at verse 25. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, Go, say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, what are you doing here, and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. You disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. Then we turn to our New Testament reading as well as our text from Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7 and ending at verse 13. Again, listen to the word of God. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven for my God. 
And I will also write on him my new name. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, the Olympic torch is coming to town. And no doubt, as it has done elsewhere, that will create no lack of excitement and hype. People will come out in droves, the media will be there, Olympic fervor will fill the air. And at the center of it all will be someone in a white plastic-looking suit carrying a stainless steel rod with a flame coming out of the top end. And when you see that, you will know that the fire of Mount Olympus has reached the city of Langley. It has come all the way from Greece, crisscrossed Canada, and is coming close to its final destination, the city of Vancouver. It all signals that the Olympics are about to begin. But now let's backtrack for a moment and look at those white-suited people to the torchbearers. Who are they? I've been told that in most cases they are people who either have made significant contributions to Canadian life, be it in business, politics, entertainment, or sports, or if not, then at least they represent significant Canadian groups of people, be that the young, the disabled, or the Native community. In other words, to carry the torch, you either need to be significant in your own right, like Wayne Gretzky, I guess, or you need to represent a significant group of people. In short, ordinary people who live ordinary lives are not singled out for this special honor. I come to think of it, that goes with many things in life. To be singled out as special, you have to be special, or you need to be part of a special group. Ordinary, common, run-of-the-mill people need not apply. And what this means is that most of us are not special or significant. Sorry to tell you, but you're just a bunch of plain people. You belong to the masses. You're almost close to invisible. No newspaper pictures, no headlines, no interviews, and no white suits for you. Now that's, that's life. That's how most of us live below the radar screen of publicity and fame. We're ordinary. Yes, and that applies to most churches as well. Only a few ever make the headlines. Only the mega churches and a few Joel Osteen types ever make any waves. But then, you know, making waves in the eyes of the world is one thing. Making waves in the eyes of God is quite another. Well, there are those moments when we all crave human popularity. It's good to remind ourselves that divine popularity is of much more value and import. 
And to see that, let us turn our attention this morning to the sixth church on that somewhat circular route in Asia Minor that we looked at last time. I preach to you Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia. And it reveals, this letter reveals this church to be a unique church, a strategic church, and a blessed church. Well, beloved, today we're going to take another closer look at one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Last time in chapter 2, we looked at the church of Thyatira. This time in chapter 3, we're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. In other words, in this sermon series, we're only going to look at two of the seven churches. Still, having said that, most of you, I think, are somewhat familiar with the other five churches as well, in Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, and so forth. You come across them in your Bible reading, you come across them in your Bible study groups, and then you surely know that, in a sense, all of these churches, while they're all churches of Jesus Christ, none of them receives the same letter. There are no carbon copies here. Each church lives in a special place, faces special challenges, and receives special promises. Oh, and one more thing, almost all of these churches receive special criticism as well. Almost all, I said. Of the seven, there are two that are not reprimanded. One of those you can find in chapter 2, it's the church at Smyrna. And the other you find here in chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia or the church of brotherly love, literally. You see, the church of our text this morning receives no words of criticism from Christ. No criticism, no failure, no compromise is attributed to her. And how is that ever Is that ever nice? Sometimes today a church can have a good reputation in a local community. No one has anything negative or nasty to say about it and about its members. And that's great. That's great and perhaps also unusual. But you know what is far, far greater is when Jesus Christ, who sees all, knows all, hears all, has only good things to say about a church. Now that's truly remarkable. And that's the way it was with Philadelphia. Christ writes to her and he says a number of noteworthy things about her. First, notice from our text, the church of Philadelphia is a weak church. Christ says, I know that you have little strength. Now that can mean little strength in terms of number, little strength also in terms of influence or both. But whatever the case may be, it would appear that this is one of the most fragile and vulnerable of the seven churches. That in and of itself, it has very, very little power, much less influence. And secondly, this church is a rather surprising church. In spite of its weakness, it is faithful 
and true to its Savior. Christ says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You know, unlike Sardis and Laodicea, the saints in Philadelphia have not played fast and loose with Christ's name, nor have they developed amnesia with respect to his word. No matter what people said about them or how they threatened them, they remain true to their Lord and their Savior. And third, this church is a persecuted church. While their enemies may have been many, there was one that stood out in particular. Christ himself calls it the synagogue of Satan. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the persecution in the city of Philadelphia was coming especially from one direction, and that was from the Jews. Philadelphia had a group of Jews who hated, detested, defamed, did everything possible to destroy Christians. And indeed, their outlook and their tactics are so bad that Christ identifies them with the devil. He calls their meeting place a synagogue of Satan. He even denies their their very Jewishness, for they claim to be Jews, he says, though they are not, but are liars. They're a mockery to their name. So you start to get the picture. This church is weak, it's surprising, it's persecuted. But notice, it's also very much protected. Verse 10, Christ says, Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming or going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, what's Christ referring to in that verse 10? Well, two things. For one, I think that Christ is referring to some great and some sweeping persecution that is about to affect the saints in Philadelphia very soon. And indeed, it's interesting. If you study church history, then you learn that in the year 155 A.D., a terrible persecution swept through Philadelphia It even martyred one of the church fathers called Polycarp. And so you can say there is an immediate, there's a local application here. This church will soon suffer terrible oppression. But, you know, there's also a more distant and universal application For Christ is also reminding all believers that many of them will not escape the intense persecution that will come in the last days. In other words, we are not dispensationalists who believe that the saints will be snatched away in the great rapture and that they will be exempt from the hour of trial. And we believe that the church will go through the fiery furnace and will experience it in all of its awfulness. But at the same time, we believe there is light at the end of the tunnel. 
For though this hour is coming, Christ promises to keep his followers. He says, I will keep you. Yes, and he is able to keep that promise. You remember how he introduced himself as the one who is holy and true? Christ is the Holy One of God. He's the true God, the true Son of God. That means he has both the power, the might, and the ability to keep and protect his people. And so, beloved, also for us today, the message is clear. We need to keep looking to Jesus. We need to keep on being faithful to him. We need to keep on depending upon him in all the circumstances of situations of life, no matter how difficult, no matter how dire, how tough. Keep on obeying his commands. Ask God to help you keep his word. And he will keep you to the end. Remind yourself of this every day especially when the days are dark and black. And remind your children of this as well. Be faithful, and I will keep you to the end. But then, beloved, if the church at Philadelphia is a unique church for all of the reasons cited, it's also something else. It's a strategic church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, notice that Christ also refers to a key and an open door. He says about himself that he holds the key of David. And he also says to the Philadelphians, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, immediately on reading those words, some think of the key and the door of salvation. After all, the expression, the key of David, as I mentioned to you already, is found in Isaiah 22, where it is used in reference to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who is said to control access to the king and to all of his power. And in the same way now, Jesus Christ, a far greater steward in the house of God, is said to control access to God the Father, and to all of his saving treasures and gifts. So when Christ refers to David's key and to an open door, he's saying to his followers, don't worry. You know, the door to the synagogue may have been shut closed to you, But with my key powers, I will open another door for you, a door for the gospel, a door of salvation, a door to God and all the riches of his grace. So, beloved, Christ has the keys. He has the keys of death and Hades, which means he has the power over life and death. But he also has the key of David, which is the key to God to his kingdom, to his salvation. Now that's the first explanation of the key and the door. But you know, there's another one as well. 
And to understand it, you need to know something about the location of the city of Philadelphia. It's a city situated at the entrance to the high and the central plateau that dominates the province of Asia. To get to that plateau, you have to go through the city. So this is a city of strategic importance. It's a kind of gateway city. Now, in that connection, too, Christ speaks about a key and a door. Because of the location of Philadelphia, both the city as well as the church have before it a door of great opportunity. And you may know elsewhere, Paul speaks about doors of opportunity. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, he says, a, a great door for effective work has been given to me. And later on in 2 Corinthians 2, he says about Troas, that he found that the Lord had opened a door for me. A door of opportunity, a door to work. And so you see, what Christ is also getting at here is he's saying to the saints in Philadelphia, I, I know that life is tough for you people. I know you're always being oppressed and persecuted and discriminated against by the Jews especially. Nevertheless, there is still this door of opportunity. I've opened it with my key. I've thrust it open with my hand and I urge you to make the most of it. Now when you think about that, that's, that's interesting. That's really interesting. But you know, in this terrible situation, you might have expected Jesus Christ to say to his church, stay calm, cool, collected, adopt a low profile, say little, do little, be invisible. The storm will soon one day pass. In other words, you might expect Jesus Christ to say, now is the time to hunker down in your bunkers. Or to go into some kind of a holy huddle. So that you don't attract any more attention to yourself or to the gospel. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't urge them to play it safe. He doesn't advise them to put their life and their witness on hold. And why not? Well, partly it's as one popular Christian writer has remarked, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. And then he doesn't mean fight outside, but fight inside. Whenever believers take the approach, and maybe you've noticed that as well in your life's journey, but whenever believers take the approach that, that now is not the time to be faithful, to speak up, or to bear witness, but now is the time to build thick walls and hide behind them, then people end up fighting and feuding among themselves. A church that withdraws from the world, that suspends its testimony, becomes an ingrown church. And what do ingrown churches do best 
They navel gaze. They major in minors. They fight among themselves. Lacking an outward focus, they lose their sense of calling and they shrivel and they die. And that must not happen in the church of Philadelphia. And indeed, that must not happen in any of the churches of Jesus Christ in this world, both then as well as now. Christ, the great key opener, still opens doors. And he calls on his church to walk through them and to make the most of them. And whether that means working locally in British Columbia or working in Brazil or in Mexico or in China, the work goes on. Those who are called to fish should fish. And that's us. Oh, and when we do, not just Opportunity awaits, but blessings do as well. Notice what Christ promises to the holders on and to the overcomers. Not only will their enemies bow before them, but three other things are mentioned. A crown, a pillar, and a new name. Again, to understand what Christ means here, you need to know something about the background of Philadelphia. The first thing you need to know is that in Philadelphia, too, they love their athletic games. Like most of the city is in Asia Minor, as well as in Greece, sports was a national pastime. And when, as an athlete, you won a race or a discus toss or whatever have you, you were normally awarded a crown, a wreath made of branches and flowers, and sometimes, in special cases, a wreath made of silver or gold. Today, you know, we give medals, gold, silver, or bronze medals. Then they give crowns. Today, we give medals. And so what does Christ promise to his faithful followers? Well, to the believers in Smyrna, that other faithful church, by the way, in chapter 2, he promised the crown of life. And now notice to the believers in Philadelphia, he promises those who persevere will get to keep those crowns of life. That no enemy will take them away, no circumstances will cause them to lose it, no power will rob them of that crown. These crowns will remain on their heads, so to speak, for the rest of their lives and into all eternity. These people are destined for eternal things because they have the crown of life. But notice, not only does the crown remain, they are pillars too. Now, you might wonder, what's that? Who wants to be a pillar? Especially who wants to be a temple pillar and who wants to be a pile of stones somewhere? But again, there's a couple things to understand here. The first is that Philadelphia was not just a gateway city, but also a city 
of earthquakes. The ground was always shaking. Buildings were perpetually falling down. And my Christ says, and maybe you missed that expression, never again shall he leave it. He's referring to people when these tremors struck, running out of the city into the countryside, where they thought they'd be safe. It's the same thing that you read about in Haiti every time there's a tremor. Everybody heads for the open spaces. Well, that was kind of a a normal thing to do in the city of Philadelphia. Now, the second thing you need to understand is that in Philadelphia and elsewhere, people who won athletic contests not only received victory crowns or wreaths, they also had temple pillars named after them. Temples were the ancient halls of fame. In a way, it's a bit like that boardwalk in Hollywood where you get to stick your hand in the concrete if you're kind of famous, and that's where it stays for who knows how long the concrete lasts. Well, so when Christ promised believers that they will be like pillars, he's hooking into current customs. But he's also going them one better. He's saying to the believers, you too are going to be like pillars. Only you're going to be like pillars in God's Hall of Fame. You're going to receive a place in the greatest temple of all, the temple of the living God. And there you are going to receive an eternally secure place for your pillar is not going to rattle, roll, and collapse. No earthquake is going to tumble you down. As a believer, you're promised a crown, and you're promised a pillar. And one last thing, you're promised a new name. You know, in the ancient world, it often happened that if a rich man had no sons to carry on his name, he would take one of his slaves, and adopt him and make him his heir. And that means, of course, that with a stroke of the pen, your life, your future, your situation in life changed drastically. And now Christ promises those who persevere that they're going to receive a new name, a name symbolizing a new future, a new status, a new inheritance. Christ is going to write on his followers both the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. You see what he's saying? He's saying that all of God's people will wear the name the new name of their father. It's not so different from baptism. When we all get to wear the name, the new name of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Rael Leffers has more than just one human name. She has a divine name. Daughter of the father, the son, 
and the Holy Spirit. But notice also a new destination comes along with that new name. And it's not heaven. Heaven is interim. We've got to keep that in mind. Our final destination, beloved, isn't heaven. It's the new heaven. And we're going to see that. And the new earth. We're going to see that very clearly, the Lord willing, at the end of this book of Revelation. The new Jerusalem is coming down from God. We're not going to go up to it. It's going to come down to us and it's going to envelop us in life and glory and peace and joy forever. What an inheritance. What a future we have. So now, when you think about those people running around Langley in those white suits carrying that torch... And now, if you happen to be disappointed because you're not one of the chosen ones, don't despair. The world may bypass you and call you, by implication, insignificant. But if you're a faithful child of God, realize that far, far richer honors and blessings are coming your way. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.